Well, good morning. There's a, there's a bunch of visitors here, so it's great to see you. If you're a visitor with us, we are very, very glad that you are here. We believe in preaching the Word of God and giving considerable time to it, and so that's what we're going to go into today. Well, I'm not sure how many of you read philosophy on a regular basis, probably not a lot of you, but we've all listened to it, at least somewhere along the line. Back in 1980, one melodic philosopher said this, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our minds. That was the uh, famed philosopher Bob Marley. About 12 years later, after Bob Marley... A group of philosophers fighting against racism theorized, free your mind and the rest will follow. That was the R&B group En Vogue, if you remember their song. Well, perhaps it carries more weight if a French Enlightenment philosopher said it. Voltaire said, man is free at the moment he wishes to be. Is freedom self-realized? Is freedom self-realized? Is it something that we can actually attain for ourselves? We all love a, a great escape like Shawshank Redemption or the Count of Monte Cristo or even the great ex, uh, escape itself. Thank you, Steve McQueen, for being awesome and so cool. I heard that he became a Christian before he died, which just makes it all the more awesome. All these escapes were driven by the will and the craft of the confined, But there is something equally compelling, if not more compelling, about a rescue. A rescue. In a moment of absolute despair and hopelessness, the hero arrives and makes a way to lead the confined out. And we're riveted by such a story. The greatest hero and the greatest story of rescue and escape is the one told in the gospel. The saga continues at the Feast of Booze where Jesus was still in Jerusalem and he was conversing with the Jews and the Jews were growing more hostile and Jesus continued to intensify his words as he continued to go along and and last week we ended with verse 30 where many believed in him we're told which sounds like good progress, right? We got people believing in Jesus but we'll soon see that their belief wasn't saving faith. Just watch how it all ends. All along, Jesus was describing for them his authority, his calling and mission, his unity with the Father, his truthfulness, his sufficiency as the all-satisfying thirst quencher of the soul, his glory as the light of the world, his supremacy over the darkness, his heavenly origin, his crucifixion, his complete and perfect righteousness, and even his divinity, and the Father agreed with it all. But the crowd did not. And in these following eight verses, Jesus will uncover the true nature of their belief. In fact, he will uncover their enslavement to sin. And he'll tell them the hard truth. So you gotta gotta get ready for this wild ride. Jesus says some amazing things. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He said this to those who had believed in him. Now, it will become clear in the next two weeks that their belief was a qualified belief. 
Their belief was insincere like the crowd in John 2, if you remember, who believed in the miracles of Jesus, but they had no change of heart. They just wanted the miracles. And, and even we could go to John 6, where many of Jesus' disciples, after he taught hard things, turned their back on him and went home. They left him. See, real disciples of Jesus persevere in his word. Real disciples of Jesus persevere in his word. Perseverance shows commitment. Are you really a marathoner? If at, oh, I'd say mile 15, you just stop running and you grab a donut and you head to the car and you go home. No, true marathoners run the race well and they finish the race. To be a marathoner, you have to finish. Perseverance confirms commitment. Think about it. Do real and affectionate Disciples of Jesus attempt to murder him in sweltering rage over what he taught. No. No, but that's just what happened in John 8 with those who believed in Jesus. That's how it ends. Perhaps their species of belief was driven by guilt or pressure or fear or maybe even a certain level of intellectual assent, believing that what he was saying was true. But it wasn't saving faith that was driven by a heart change and affection for Christ. See, a disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. A Jesus enthusiast who commits their life to learning from Jesus and imitating Jesus. A disciple is someone who is always learning, always learning and striving to obey. And Jesus told the believing Jews that they would prove to be genuine disciples of his only if they abide in his word. Real disciples abide in the word of Christ. You're not a disciple of Jesus because you say you are. You're not a disciple of Jesus because of your family or your friends or your church. You're not a disciple of Jesus because you work hard at it. The mark of true disciples is abiding in the word of Jesus. Back in the 1970s, there was a lodge, and it was called the Mount St. Helens Lodge, and it was at the base of Mount St. Helens by Spirit Lake. And for over 50 years, a man named Harry uh, Randall Truman was the caretaker of that lodge. Well, Mount St. Helens, as you probably know, was ready to blow in 1980, but against the counsel and appeals uh, people made to Harry, he remained at his lodge. He wouldn't leave. Nothing could dissuade Harry from leaving the lodge and the lake that he loved. It was said that at one point, precursor earthquakes knocked Harry from his bed. So do you know what he did? He took his bed and he moved it into the basement. Stubborn man. Leading up to the eruption, Harry was celebrated really in America as a sort of folk hero. uh, Receiving fan mail. He even got some marriage proposals from people. You know how that thing goes. Even songs were written about Harry. He, he, for all intents and purposes, was famous. And Harry said this, If the mountain goes, I'm going with it. Well, as you know, on May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens blew and became the deadliest and most destructive volcanic eruption in the continental United States. On May 18, Truman was alone at the Mount St. Helens Lodge when the volcano blew. 
And Harry was engulfed by what's called the pyroclastic flow, which is fast-moving hot gas and rock, which buried him and the lodge under 150 feet of rubble. Harry was 83 years old. After Harry died, his friend John Garrity commented, the mountain and the lake were his life. If he'd left and then saw what the mountain did to his lake, it would have killed him anyway. He always said he wanted to die at Spirit Lake. He went the way he wanted to go. Well, you got to give Harry one thing. He loved that lodge and he loved that lake. And he wasn't about to leave them. No matter what, he would stay put. When you abide in something, you continue to live in it. You remain in it. You do not abandon it. To abide in the word of Jesus is to know and treasure it, but also to live in it with commitment and obedience. Abiding is persevering. On two different occasions in Matthew, Jesus warned his disciples of persecution and suffering that would come to them on account of the gospel. And he told him this, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Enduring in the Word is the test of true discipleship. And to abide in the Word of Jesus is to abide in Jesus Himself. The Word of Jesus cannot be separated from the person of Jesus. Jesus spoke clearly. Unless you believe, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And that species of belief is an abiding belief, an enduring belief, a persevering belief. There's something else about real disciples. Real disciples of Jesus are free. Real disciples of Jesus are free. Liberated. Unshackled people are those who abide in the word of Jesus. John said in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We're not encumbered by the the commandments of Jesus Christ. They're not a burden. They're a joy. Abiding in the Word of Jesus does not hinder and restrict your life. It does just the opposite. It offers you freedom. It frees you to really live. Jesus said real disciples will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Experiencing true freedom is conditional upon knowing and abiding in the word of Jesus. The word of Jesus can't be separated from Jesus himself. And I want you to see where I'm getting that. In verse 32, what sets you free? The truth sets you free. And then down in verse 36... It is the Son that sets you free. The truth and the Son of God are inseparable. They both liberate because they are both one. Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. He is the truth. So to know the truth, you must know the Son. And I want you to see one more important thing before we move on. Freedom is given. It's not earned. We don't devise some brilliant escape plan by thinking it up for a while and and we run for the border. Can you see that in the text? It is the truth that does the freeing. 
As we abide in the word of Christ, the truth is active to liberate us. It is the truth. It is Jesus who takes us to real and lasting freedom. But what freedom is Jesus talking about in verse 32? What's he referring to? When Jesus said to them, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he was implying that they didn't know the truth and that they were not free. That's why he was telling them this. His inference bothered them, and you can understand why. So they said to Jesus in verse 33, take a look, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What was happening here? They didn't think they needed to be free. They were the privileged descendants of Abraham. Israel had been enslaved before, they knew that. But they are likely referring to themselves as first century Jews who were under Roman rule, yes, but on a whole experienced religious freedom, even though they were subject to Caesar. So they may have been referring to political freedom, but it's likely they were referring to religious and spiritual freedom because they appeal to being offspring of Abraham, a religious appeal. That's an Old Testament appeal. In other words, they thought that they were part of God's covenant people. God's covenant chosen people, free people. They weren't religiously or spiritually enslaved, according to them. They were free children of Abraham. They connected their freedom to bloodline. They connected their freedom to a religious system, a religious tradition, not the truth of Jesus and not faith in Jesus. Well, they had accused Jesus, just moments before, by saying, your testimony is not true. They made that definitive statement. They didn't want the truth. Their, their ethnicity, their religious system was good enough. It was, it was freedom enough for them. They considered themselves free. They, they couldn't understand why Jesus would imply anything other than their freedom. And that's because their hearts were hard to the truth. They didn't want to hear that they were enslaved. They refuse to address their main problem. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And that was true. They turned a blind eye to their sin. They ignored what Jesus said about their sin, about their spiritual bondage. They were enslaved. And instead of humbly receiving the truth, they stiffened in spiritual pride. They stiffened in their privilege as children of Abraham. They bypassed the very first Step towards true and lasting freedom. To humbly admit. Just to admit. And confess your sin to God. Admit your desperate need for a Savior. And to trust in Jesus as that Savior. They didn't even want to go there. So while they refused to abide in the truth. They continued to abide in their sin. And so Jesus explained verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Here's the point. Everyone who lives in sin is a slave to sin and not free. Everyone who practices sin, everyone who is committed to sin, everyone whose lifestyle is defined by sin, they are in bondage to sin. And they are not free world would like you to believe something different than that. Make sure you understand what Jesus means because this can lend to confusion in the Christian's mind. Whenever Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying that for emphasis. 
Hey, listen up. Truly, truly, this is absolutely true. Listen. And Jesus told them the truth of God. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And do you understand what that means? It takes a little bit of thinking to, to understand that. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin. So where does their, their heritage in Abraham leave them in respect to sin? Does it matter if they're a privileged um, uh, descendant of Abraham? They, that doesn't distinguish them from the universal depravity of man, the sinfulness of man. They were part of everyone. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who lives in a pattern of sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who lives in a lifestyle of sin is a slave to sin. Sin rules, not righteousness. To practice sin is to be controlled by sin, to continue in it, to commit to it, to perpetuate it in your life. To practice sin is to live in it, to propagate it. Think of it this way. It is an active lifestyle of sin, and it's accepting, you know what? This is just the way that it is. You know, the whole boys will be boys mentality, this is, this is just the way that it is, and it's doing nothing to abolish sin in your life. Practicing sin is floating along with the current instead of heading upstream against the current in the wake of Jesus Christ who pulls you through. And as you head downstream, meandering with the stream, the current takes you exactly where the stream wants to take you. Slavery, folks, is awful. 19th century America proves that in other cultures as well. As horrific as slavery was in America, enslavement to sin is infinitely more serious and horrific. Slavery to sin is not the freedom of choice. Sin takes ownership. Sin defines. Sin dictates. Sin is uh, the demanding and formidable slave owner, master, driving its slaves into deeper anguish and hopelessness and despondency. Now, you may not be aware of this, but human trafficking and slavery still exists in the United States of America. Slavery is alive and well, and one ongoing manifestation of this is sex trafficking in America. I read something very interesting from what's called the Polaris Project. I don't know really anything about the organization, but I do know that they fight against human trafficking. And I want you to listen closely to the language of this paragraph that I'm going to read you and how it resembles what sin does to enslave the soul of man. Here's the paragraph. Sex traffickers may lure their victims with the false promise of a high-paying job. Others promise a romantic relationship where they first establish an initial period of false love and feigned affection. During this period, they offer gifts, compliments, and sexual and physical intimacy while making elaborate promises of a better life, fast money, and future luxuries. However, the trafficker eventually employs a variety of control tactics, including physical and emotional abuse, sexual assault, confiscation of identity and money, isolation from friends and family, and even renaming victims. Isn't that striking? You know, false love and feigned affection can feel good to a person. 
Gifts and compliments and intimacy and riches have their appeal. This is what sin does. It promises what it cannot deliver. Instead, it controls, it abuses, it strips all dignity and isolates us from true and lasting joy in God. The paragraph said that these traffickers, I find this very interesting, even rename their victims. For those who live in sin, those who are slaves of sin, sin defines them, sin sin names them. But folks, there is a freedom fighter. There is a Savior. There is one who liberates, and His name is Jesus Christ. He makes men and women free. The only hope of freedom for the slave is the Son. Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. You see, a slave is transient. A slave is temporary. A slave does not have all the privileges and the rights and the benefits of a son because he's not a son. He's a slave. The son has all the full privileges of the family. The son will always be a son, but the slave can be sold, can be traded. In verse 35, the son that remains forever is only Jesus Christ. That is God's Son. That's what it's talking about. He has the Father. He as the Son has the inheritance. He as the Son has the authority. The slaves in verse 35 are the Jews he was talking with and they were not true children of Abraham or children of faith or children of promise. They were slaves of sin. And and they showed their true colors by abiding in sin, continuing in sin. If their faith would have been genuine, well then, if it was saving faith, he would have abided in the word of Jesus as free sons of God. Now, in order to understand verse 35, you have to go back to the Old Testament to Genesis 15 to get a full weight of Jesus' words. I want to fill you in real quick about where John is going here, where Jesus is going. Abram and Sarai were old and without children. You You may remember that from the Old Testament. And God told Abram that he would have a son to Sarai. And that son would be his heir and his descendants would be like the stars. In Genesis 16, the miracle of God seemed to be taking too long for Abram and Sarai. And and so Abram and Sarai conceived another plan and Abram had a child with Hagar, the slave woman, and the son's name was Ishmael. Ishmael, however, was not the son of promise. He was a slave's son. Yet he had the favor of Abram. In Genesis 17, God changed Abram's name and Sarai's name to Abraham and Sarah and instituted this covenant sign of circumcision. Abraham pleaded with God that Ishmael would be the son of promise. Why not my son Ishmael? Was his plea. But God said no. The son of promise would come from old and barren Sarah. Then in Genesis 21, Isaac, the son of promise, was born. A glorious moment. Born to Sarah, just as God had said. And at the celebration of Isaac's weaning, Sarah noticed that Ishmael was laughing at the occasion. That made mom mad. And she said these memorable words, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. A slave son, an heir? 
Listen to how God responded to Abraham might be different than we would expect. Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac, through the son of promise, shall your offspring be named. The son stayed under the divine blessing of God, of Abraham rather. The slave Though blessed for a time, Ishmael, though blessed for a time, was just a slave and he was banished from the family. Now eventually there came another son from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a son named Jesus Christ. He was the supreme son. And though the Jews of John 8 were descendants of Abraham, they were slaves banished from the kingdom of God for their rejection of the supreme son. Jesus the son remains forever. Jesus the son abides forever. They were Jews, yes, but also slaves. And they had no coming blessing or promise because they remained banished slaves. After that, Jesus said in verse 36, So if the Son, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus preached the gospel to these Jews. Jesus preached himself as the answer to spiritual slavery. He was the great emancipator, he was the great liberator. Jesus put himself forward as the Son of God and the only, the only emancipator of slaves of sin. Whomever Jesus unshackles from the oppressive, tyrannical rule of sin will experience true and lasting freedom in him. This is the sovereign and supreme grace, the sovereign and supreme power, the sovereign and supreme authority of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus can liberate the most desperate and despondent slave. Notice the slave doesn't run for the border by some self-guided, cunning, covert escape route. The slave doesn't purchase their freedom. The slave doesn't work hard enough to, to finally earn up enough money to pay off the master so they can go free. No, the son sets the slave free. Freedom flows from the power and privilege of the son. The authority and ability of the son The intention and initiative of the Son. The Son of God takes action to liberate the spiritual slave in bondage to sin. And he does so by purchasing the slave's freedom. This is called redemption. The idea of redemption in Scripture where the Son of God gives his life in exchange for the slave's life. Peter talked about this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He said, knowing that you were ransomed, or you could say you were redeemed, or you could say you were set free from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's sin, the feudal ways. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, so you can't buy it with currency, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. It needed to be a perfect lamb. It needed to be a righteous lamb. And Jesus Christ takes the place of the spiritual slave and liberates them by his power and his light. Every emancipated slave is set free by Jesus who purchased their freedom with his own costly blood. There is no freedom apart from the blood-soaked cross of Christ. 
A freedom received by grace through faith alone. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is fundamentally the gospel. And Jesus is preaching it to Jews who need to hear it, Jews who are, who are trapped in their sins. Yes, Jesus' words were tough, but they were filled with love and grace and mercy as he makes yet another appeal to people caught in their religion to free them with himself. In our gospel freedom, we obtain the right and privilege and power to pursue holiness and righteousness of life. William Hendrickson, he's a brilliant commentator, he wrote this, and I really want you to think about this. One is free, therefore, not when he can do what he wishes to do, but when he wishes to do and can do what he should do. Please understand that Jesus did not purchase you with his costly blood to just spring your soul from hell. He did it for more. He liberated you from sin to passionately desire and pursue Him and a life of righteousness in Him. He, he, he liberated you, He emancipated you to pursue His will, to give you freedom and power to actually do His will. Your freedom is not a license to sin, saying, hey, I've got the insurance card, I've got the fire insurance card, I'm not going to burn so much more than that. If that's what your faith is, you need to grow. It's not just about being out of hell. It's about living a holy life unto Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson said this, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. We want to do what God wants us to do when we're free. True freedom is liberation from the sinful bondage of the mind, the bondage of the will, the bondage of the affections. So freeing us to think and choose and feel what we ought. In doing what we ought, we now experience our greatest joy and pleasure in God. This is freedom in the Son. Outside of Christ is only slavery. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. Jesus liberates us from sin and hell and death and misery, but we cannot forget, forget that Jesus bought us. He bought us with his blood. We are now infinitely free, yet we are slaves of another master, what Paul calls slaves of righteousness. And in another place, he says slaves of Christ. We are free, yet we were bought by our new master, Jesus Christ, to live according to his will. Your Christian liberty means you now are enslaved to doing the will of God, which is the most liberating, beneficial, invigorating, rewarding, and gratifying life. Jesus pierced them with these penetrating words. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word 
finds no place in you. Had they forgotten it is the children of faith that are legitimate children of Abraham? Not lineage, faith. Not descent, faith. Not bloodlines, faith. Read Romans 9. It will help you understand Jesus here in John 8. The true Israel is not about Jewish descent. It's about being a child of promise, a child of faith. Even Romans 2 says that a true Jew is one inwardly. A heart for Christ makes a true Jew or God's people. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. These Jews in John 8 sought to kill the Son of God because the word of the Son, the truth of the Son, found no place in their heart. They were filled with too much other stuff, sin, whatever. Go back to verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You must abide in his word. And his word must abide in you to be his true disciple. I want you just to see and to think about for a little bit the consequences of not abiding in his word. And his word not abiding in you. It is the severest rebellion against God. It is violent treason. They wanted to kill God's only son because his word found no place in them. I I want you just to think of the devastating effect that it will have in your life when the word of, of the son does not dwell in you. When you are not in Christ, the devastating things that you will produce in your life. If your eyes are open and, and you study yourself well, when you're not walking with Christ, you know how deep your sin can get. That is the cold truth. There is no more severe slavery than that. Are you free indeed? Jerusalem Church, are you free indeed? Are you really free? Do you live more like a free man or do you live more like a slave to sin? Your answer depends on whether you're abiding in the word of Christ. Are you abiding, Jerusalem church? Are you remaining or living in the word of the Son? Are you as determined to abide in the word of Jesus as Harry Randall Truman was to stay in his lodge by his beloved lake? Would you think about that? Jesus' words are tough. They're very tough. In the next two weeks, they're going to get even tougher. So hold on to your seats. But they're so precious words because they're words of gospel. They're words of hope and freedom and liberation. I want you to think about that, each one of you. Are you abiding in the word of Christ? Are you truly free? Are you liberated? Are you emancipated? And, and taking your joy in the one who led you out to experience real and lasting freedom. As the praise team comes up, you guys can come up a while, I'm going to leave you hanging on verse 38 where Jesus said this, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Now we're just going to hang on that What does he mean? Maybe you can read ahead and see where we're going. What does he mean by your father? They have two different fathers. This is one of of the most uh, devastating and disturbing things that Jesus ever said. 
And uh, next week, we're going to unpack it. So I will put in a little plug for next week. You're not going to want to miss. It's going to get in interesting. Might be a little hot in here, all right? So uh, why don't we pray, and then we'll, we'll close with a, a wonderful song of truth to enjoy Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that Jesus is the truth. And I pray, God, that you will help Jerusalem Church to abide in the word of Christ. That we would be so taken with Jesus Christ, our emancipator, that we would be free indeed. We don't want to be slaves to sin. We want to be truly free men and women to walk in righteousness, to be slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, slaves to joy, slaves to goodness, slaves to the fruit of the Spirit. So God, we need your grace to fall and to produce this in our lives. We ask you, in the name of your Son, the truth of God, Jesus Christ, amen.